Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I'm your guest, James Lewis. And we are your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 222, Three Twos. James Lewis's passion for teaching non-engineers has led him to create the Bald Engineer blog and the Ad Ohms video tutorial series. With 20 years of experience in electronics, marketing, sales, and teaching, James boils seemingly difficult concepts down to the core so that anyone can learn what they need to finish that next great project. And James was also on the previous episode, 141, It Depends, A Depth in Look into MLCCs. So thank you, James, for coming on to the podcast again. Thank you for having me back, guys. It's great to talk to you again. Yeah, last time uh, it was it was I was super excited about that that one. It was great to have somebody uh, give some really in depth n- uh, knowledge on uh, on capacitors, and because uh, w- we had talked about that many times before, and uh, luckily we found you to come on. So uh, today we're actually going to be talking about how to test and validate your new PCB assemblies and the equipment needed for that. Yeah, so this is like um, if you have a new PCB assembly or a project that you're working on, what should you do to make sure it's working properly? It's not just as simple as turning it on, or is it? <laughs> if it was only that easy. <laughs> I mean, it could. M- many times it is, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, it's it's funny because I, I've, I've seen situations where uh, people will turn on the first spin of a board and it turns on fine and everything's great. And then they get back a second or third spin, and that's when they run into problems because they fixed something else they found, but now it won't power on. So what do you do in that case? So you just finished your PCB assembly or you got back from your fab house. Like, what do you do first before you power on that board? Here, here's what I, I would recommend, and I, I'd be curious what you guys do because this is what I do. So first thing is um, you always want to do a visual check, right? You want to look just try to look around and see, are there any things, are there any solder bridges that might've happened? Are, if you can tell, are LEDs in the right orientation? You know, you're just visually looking for anything that maybe it passed at the manufacturer, but you wanna, be, you wanna know about before you turn it on. Um, and then I always, always do a um, resistance check between the power rails and ground. And, you know, of course, because there's a bunch of active components, you're not going to get a a perfect reading by any means, but if you see a direct short on any of your rails, you probably don't want to move forward. <laughs> it's a good way to let the smoke out. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You won't see a direct short, and sometimes they actually will beep right away as those mm-hmm. capacitors charge up. Yep, and then it will stop beeping. Uh, talking about a continuity test on a multimeter will beep. Yeah, actually, that's a really good point because I've I've also seen people run into that is they hear the beep from the caps charging and they think there's a problem and it's like no, you just have to think about it, right? Caps start out as a short and then they open up, so you know that's actually that could also be an indicator, especially if you've got a couple thousand microfarads for de- decoupling. You should actually expect to see that behavior, and if you don't, that'd be another thing to sort of just you know at least at least think about what should I be paying attention to when I do apply power. Mm-hmm. You, you know, another thing also that I've, I've run into, and this is a little bit goofy, but before you, you, you try to look for shorts on a board, I mean, obviously you don't want shorts, but always just touch your, your 
probes together and see what your meter reads when it it thinks there's a short because a lot yeah. of times it's not actually reading zero and then you start getting all these weird readings when you're looking at your board and then you're like ah, i don't know like what's seven tenths of an ohm mean here when in reality that's just the offset of your m meter I've, I've i've actually had my my uh meter probes fail before <laughs> and gone through all these tests trying to figure out what is going on and then <laughs> and then put the probes together and there's no beep and i'm like well because that's uh an hour of my life i won't get back <laughs> i was uh so i used to be a member of a, of a makerspace and i taught electronics classes like how to use like multimeters and stuff and i was testing i was actually turning on a board one time and i kept doing the the um the, that check where i kept tapping the leads together to make sure that it was still in continuity mode. And somebody asked me why I was doing that. Was I doing that just to be annoying? And <laughs> I just, just kind of laughed because I was like, no, you know, to me, that's one of those things where you can tell an experienced, uh, uh, an experienced user because we've all, quote, troubleshot a board only to realize you were still in like diode test or something, right? And it's like this whole time you're like, oh yeah, everything's open. And it's like, no, you just didn't have the beeper on. Or you're like, okay, current, sh I'm trying to measure uh, the amperage and you got the meter in amperage, but you forgot to flip the probe to the other side of the meter. Oh man, that one's gotten me, that got me like last week actually. <laughs> <laughs> and then you try to go back to voltage and then you forget to flip the lead back. Yeah, so by the way, I, I, okay, I still forget to move it over to amps, but the one thing I would encourage everybody to ingrain in their behavior right now is before you let go of the probe, move the lead back to voltage. Even if you're just going to set the probe down, make a change, and then go back to measuring, move the probe immediately because it is so much easier to fix the problem if you're stuck in voltage, right? So it's I, I'm not saying I'm perfect at this, but I have gotten to the point, I just taught myself if i let go of the probe i immediately move the cable over so that i don't run into that problem and blow a fuse i i made that mistake one time and one time only because i tried to measure 300 volts across the cap and it was set up for Ouch. average <laughs> hmm. and 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 not only that i was i was at my desk in the middle of an office and there was quite a loud pop quite a loud pop and sparks <laughs> and the rest of the engineers just laughed at me so I don't think any of my meters have fuses in them anymore. What do they have? Aluminum foil? Uh, no, I think they have a copper wire soldered across it now. Oh, that's that's nice and safe. Yeah. Well, the leads will melt before anything catastrophic happens. Yeah, I mean everything's a fuse if you put enough current through it. Exactly. <laughs> so speaking of current, um, so yeah, so okay, okay, so basically. Do a spot visual check. Let's look at the board. Let's do some a couple of measurements with the with the continuity mode. We're basically trying to make sure there's no obvious shorts, right? Yeah, I always check uh, part rotations, especially on QFNs, QFPs mm -hmm. that are fairly easy to get rotated out. Um, especially if you have a microcontroller, and I'm looking at you, ST, that puts two dots on their on their packages or three. I ran or into three. one with three the other day. <sighs> why <laughs> so is that is that supposed to be like the opposite of what everybody else does <laughs> you know yeah. instead of instead of one dot we 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 don't put a dot on the yeah no, no, it, one of those dots is pin one for them yeah <laughs> you just have to oh. read it you have to read the pdf which one it is <laughs> yeah <laughs> why, why why break such a well-known standard 
or pseudo standard. Um, yeah, so I think the next thing is, and this is how I, again, how I turn on boards, uh, is I always limit the current to right above where I think the board should be running at. And, you know, sometimes people will ask me, well, how do you know what that current is? And I don't want to sound like a jerk when I say this, but I feel like you really should have an idea of how much current your board is going to load or draw before you turn it on, especially the first time, right? I mean, even if you have to guess at what some of the, the loads are going to draw, you know, you need to have an order of magnitude. Is it going to be 10 milliamps or 10 amps? Because there's a big difference between those two, right? Yeah. And you can easily do, I, I say easily, but just looking at what your active components are, uh, adding up what the max draw will be from those, and then, yep. you know, add a little fudge, like 20% on top, usually will get you close. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's even if it's even if you're off in general, you're not gonna you're not gonna hurt anything if if you're if your current starved a little bit. In fact, you sort of want to see that, right? If you if you see yourself starting to hit that that current limit, you can bump it up a little bit to see how the the board responds. But you'd much my my opinion anyway is I would much rather hit the current limit when there's no problem than hit the current limit if there is a problem. Mm -hmm. Now, would there be I haven't built any boards that had this issue, but um, could you have any damage from a brownout situation in that case where like you hit the current limit and let's say you're putting 3.3 volts into the board, you hit that current limit and it drops down to 2.5 volts because of the limit. Is could there any be any potential issues with that? I guess there could be. I, it, it depends on uh, on what your current limit is set at, right? Or if anything is could be damaged by a low voltage situation. Yeah, I was thinking like if you had maybe some kind of um, if you had maybe some kind of transistor setup where a threshold charged up a cap and a lower voltage caused it to discharge, that you might you might actually start you might actually while charging up you store up a bunch of uh, energy and then for some reason you end up discharging that cap and now you have more current in the system than you were expecting, but I don't know. I, I would be interested to hear from anyone that has run into that problem where current limiting actually caused the problem like this, because I'm struggling to think of a time that I've heard about it happening, but I can sort of in my mind, yeah, maybe there is a, maybe there is a potential there. I'm just not, I haven't run into it and I haven't, I haven't talked to anyone that has. Yeah, because it's it's one of those you think about. It's like that may be a problem, but I've never ran into that issue. I've never all. run into it either. I could, yeah, it certainly seems like it could be a problem. It seems like it, it the problem is more that it could create problems, uh, like you were saying, James. Like just because you're in an unknown state of in between right. everything, but I've never heard of it actually damaging anything. Let us know. <laughs> In the comments below, <laughs> if current limitings ever, on a power supply ever fried or damaged a, a PCB assembly. Yeah, I, I, I just want to say it again. I would love to hear from people if that's actually been a problem, because I would love to know where, where, where it's caused issues. It's like that uh, old saying, never plug in two surge protectors in a row or something like that. Well, that's just not up to code, right? <laughs> <laughs> Hey, sometimes you need that extra six feet of extension cord. Oh, yeah. You saw my old shop. <laughs> Warning labels or suggestions. <laughs>
<laughs> Just put okay, a high so- voltage sticker on it. You'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, don't touch. It's like it's like putting that that uh, prop sticker. You know, everything in California will cause cancer. Oh, Prop 65. Yeah, except that uh, in this case, it's a uh, just slap high voltage on everything. Then yeah. you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> I might. I, I'm about to move into a new workshop. I might put that on the doors. Danger, high voltage inside. Kind of yeah. like the Prop 65, right? There's there's high voltage everywhere, right? That's it's, exactly. <laughs> anyway, so we've got uh, current limiting. Uh, on what uh, what would be next? I mean, at, at that point, you know, I think you start you start turning the current. If if you were in the situation where you're up near the limit of where your circuit is supposed to be drawing, make sure you increase the current until the point that it's stable. And then I think at that point, if your board isn't turned on, then it's time to do some troubleshooting. <laughs> um, you know, I I'm trying to think if I've run into. I mean. Every time I've I've hit like the current limit, it's usually because now I've got to go find what's shorted out and determine why. And I was going to say who to point the finger at, but it's it's all, almost always the guy in the mirror that I have to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, that's what you would call the smoke test, right? Yeah, I guess so, right? <laughs> you know, uh, in in the past, I've I've done um, I've put zero ohm resistors for entire chunks of circuits such that i can just deactivate an entire side of a circuit if needed be and that's actually helped significantly with uh, bringing things up just in case there's an, an issue i can rule it out a lot faster than just saying well everything's connected to 3.3 i guess i start popping stuff off until i find what it is yeah, actually, or or I, I've, I've never done this, but I don't know why. As soon as you said that, I got to thinking why. You could also go in the other direction too, right? Which is, okay, maybe you have your power section separated. So you bring that up and then you bring up start bringing up other sections of the board just to make sure that uh, if you do blow something, it's limited to one specific area, right? So I guess you could go either way is either populate them at the fab and then depopulate if you need to or populate them as you go. Yeah, I could see that being like uh, maybe on the first spin of the board, you you bring it up one section at a time, and then future spins, you leave them in there as fusible links that you can remove. Yeah. And and generally, if I if I have a board that is um, being tough to diagnose a short, um, I will actually turn the current limiting off and pump as much power as I can into the board. Because usually, whatever is the problem will start to smoke. <laughs> it, it eventually tells you where the air eventually will is. tell you where it's at <laughs> i think there was one board uh i don't know if you remember at, at the fab steven that we were working on and it ended up being a short between inner inner layers and the grounding lugs on a usb connector basically the 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 design didn't have copper pushback on the inner layers for the lugs so it was everything was shorted to ground oh wow and um I think I ended up pumping 10 amps at 5 volts through that board, and the USB connector was getting hot. It probably, it, I bet you it probably sustained that for a while. Yeah, because it was, it was, you know, you're putting 50 watts through a couple lugs on a on a USB connector. <laughs> but hey, we found the solution and um, just took a little drill and, and drilled out the lugs and fixed it. That reminds me of a... <laughs> That reminds me of a PCB I did where um, it was an Eagle design, and I think it was back when I was still relatively new to Eagle. And so I was I was not fully understanding the errors that the DRC was throwing at me. And it was telling me that 
there was not enough clearance between VCC and ground. And I kept staring at where, where it was showing me, and I'm like, I don't get it. It's a ground plane. Why, why is it complaining? And after about an hour, I just decided, okay, it's got to be a bug. I mean, I just I can't figure out why it's upset. So I got the boards back, and uh, just like this, I did my continuity check, and uh, it dead short. Um, and then, like you, Parker, I was like, okay, I'm just going to apply power and see what gets hot. And you know, in this case, I didn't have any components on it, so I, I wasn't sure what was going to happen. And it was basically in the area that it kept pointing to got super hot. And I thought, what is going on? And so I went back to look at the Eagle file, and then I finally dawned on me. At some point, I had defined a power or a, a VCC plane on top of the ground plane. And I think what I was trying to do was put VCC on one layer and ground on the other. And I put them on the same layer without even realizing it. And it just, it, and as soon as I saw that, I'm like, oh my God, DRC was telling me this the entire time. Right. And <laughs> so wait, wait, was, does that, does that mean that all of your grounds and all of your power were connected together? Oh yeah. Yeah. It was terrible. <laughs> I had to go through and Dremel out every single VCC pin, um, on the board and then bodge it so that I could get the first board to turn on. Uh, because it was it was effectively useless at that point. I mean, it you was, made a really it, good heater or a really bad heater, I guess. Yeah, that's it's, a super. It's short. only in the VIA spots. <laughs> it was really inefficient, but it did teach me. It did teach me a trick that I still use to this day. Is um, I did learn very quickly. Don't use your finger to find the hot component. Uh, that's when I started using an IR camera to look at a board and I look for wherever it starts to get hot. So, like in your USB example, the USB connector should have lit up in mine um, at that at the where the junctions or where the planes were connected I think that would have lit up um, it would look like chicken pox all over it yeah now I'm starting to want now I'm starting to wonder should, the whole thing should have actually lit up in an IR camera like I think the hot spot that I found would have been obviously brighter but I think the whole board would have lit up um, but yeah, um, so yeah, so after that, I started using an IR camera, and uh, I don't even I don't have like a full on IR camera. I just have one of the attachments for my smartphone. They're not super high resolution, but to isolate a short on a board, super convenient, super convenient. I remember we got one of those at the Fab once, and we just I think we just like stopped work and just started taking infrared pictures of like all the equipment <laughs> and stuff all day. <laughs> Did, so I don't. It probably wouldn't work with shoes, but in uh, so like in my home lab, I, I walk around barefoot quite a bit. And one time I noticed that it actually, just like in the spy movies, you could actually see my footprints traced around the floor. Oh, wow. And I just thought that was so cool because it's like, wow, that's, <laughs> I mean, that is like, that is like next level, you know, what you can do with this. I didn't know it was that sensitive. Also, I didn't know that we heated the ground that much. <laughs> 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it faded within, you know, maybe a minute, but I mean, unlike the movies where it's like it lasts for hours, there's there's no way there's that much thermal transfer. But but yeah, anyway, so in terms of the smoke test, my my suggestion there is try to avoid using your fingers, use a thermal couple or a uh, or an IR camera. I mean, obviously, the IR camera is going to be super intuitive. Mm hmm. Only unfortunate part, I actually just did an Amazon search just to see like what's the state of IR cameras that you could just snag off the shelf. And you're looking for the for the plug in to the phone uh, uh, dongles. They're like hundred and thirty to four hundred dollars. And then for the uh, 
you know the the gun t- style you're you're looking at like i don't know 200 on the low end and then the top end is however much you want to spend i wonder if you could use a uh cheapo uh ir gun yeah that's what i was gonna suggest like the laser style the the only thing you want to be careful with those is don't put it in your eye kids yeah well you don't want to point it at your eye Uh, also don't point it it turns out i found out don't point it directly at your video camera either um the it'll burn your sensor out (laughs) uh, i realized afterwards it probably could have but because i use a teleprompter the teleprompter diffracted it so i think it it saved it but I pointed it at my camera and then realized, you know, that was probably the dumbest thing I've done in a while. <laughs> it, just, <laughs> it made a really cool picture, but ooh, do I wish I hadn't done that. <laughs> um, but the only thing I would say on those is be really careful. Use those as a relative number. Don't use them as an absolute because the permissivity of the material will have a dramatic effect on the number that it gives you. So definitely, you know, you'll be able to identify what's super hot with it, but don't don't write down the one digit of decimal precision like it means anything. Yeah, you're, uh, you're just trying to find out what's wrong. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it will tell you what is hot and what is not, but I don't really rely on those for accurate temperature readings. Well, now, like you, you said, just stick a thermal couple on it. You'll get a lot better reading. Yeah, Oh, and it'll also be way faster, right? Because you just kind of poke that around the circuit. And most DMMs, they, most DMMs have a, a in-type, uh, thermocouple amplifier already so that's a really good way to go so after the uh the smoke test you made sure uh your board's all powered up and there's no shorts or anything so let's let's talk about like validating the power supply or your power systems because just like using a multimeter and saying oh yeah it's 3.3 volts that might be okay for most projects and and uh pcbs but sometimes you need, like, let's say you're doing some analog work and you need to make sure your power supply is actually clean. How do you go about that, James? All right. Yeah, that's a good point. So let me preface this by saying I am a product manager for an oscilloscope company in my day job. So, of course, I'm going to talk about you should use a scope to check out the power rails. Uh, just like you mentioned, Parker, the DMM might tell you it's 3.3 volts, but it might be masking some other things about that rail. And so I would actually say there's maybe two steps here, and this is going to be really depends on what the ultimate application of the board is. But before you say maybe put the put a significant load on the microcontrollers or FPGAs or even like a motor or something, uh, you want to look at the power rails on a scope so that you can see, okay, verify that the DC level is okay, but then you want to look for what kind of noise is happening on the rail. And I would highly recommend you do something like an FFT so that you can actually see, are there any spikes or spurs from potential noise sources that you may not actually see in the time domain? Um, and so there's kind of two steps here I would recommend on the measurement is you might um, you might try to offset the DC voltage and then increase your volts per division as much as you can, and then use like a histogram or something to get a really good look at what your distribution of the peak to peak is. And then the next step would be to um, FFT it. Not, I don't think everybody knows about these, but there are special probes. They're called power rail probes, which are designed specifically for measuring uh, voltage rails. And what's really cool about them is they, they use the 50 ohm path on your oscilloscope. So they're very low noise, very wide bandwidth. Uh, 
but they present a relatively high load at DC to the supply. So you kind of get the benefit of a high load, but not using the one mega ohm path on the scope, which tends to be a little bit noisier. Um, but the real reason these are so fantastic is they typically have a very large voltage off. They typically have a very large voltage offset that you can dial out. And so if you're measuring a one, one volt rail or a three volt rail, you know, the scope or even an active probe might be able to off, offset that. But if you get into five volts and higher, you don't really get much sensitivity at those higher DC levels. So this probe allows you to null that out and then get down to one millivolt per division or 500 microvolts per division and really get a good look at what, what the noise on your rails look like. And, and this might be a unanswerable question because it's it's one of those it's like the last podcast it depends is what i think the answer is going to be but it's so you're first starting out what is a good like like let's say ripple on your rail like what should you be looking for i know that's it's like because i know it's like because <laughs> like, I'm, I'm like thinking in my head i'm like thinking of the usb spec for voltage mm -hmm. and it's like plus minus half a volt and i'm like that's yeah. in my mind that's awful but for the usb spec that's they're like yeah that's fine <laughs> yeah and, and as a as a as a yeah as a bulk supply but i mean if you think about it that's only like what is that that's plus or minus 10 percent right or is it plus or minus 5%? And so for maybe a bulk supply, something in the 10% range is probably okay. 5% is probably reasonable. Uh, but let me back up. The first place, the, the correct answer is, the first place is look at your active ICs and look in the, in the data sheet. The data sheet will likely have a range at which they can operate. So if you look at probably your microprocessors, your RF radios, like the, the baseband chips, uh, maybe even the amplifiers, and FPGAs, those are all probably going to tell you what your, what your ranges are going to be. And that, they're probably going to be the tightest thing. So that's probably the right answer is look in the data sheet, see what range it, it supports. Uh, one thing I have noticed is, and this is, a really, this is really bad news for designers, as voltage rails get closer to one volt, the allowable ripple also goes down. So not too long ago, three to 5% was probably acceptable, but that was on a five volt rail or a 3.3 volt rail. At one volt, I've seen one to 2%, which is basically, if do the math, it's basically no ripple, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you have very little room there. So if the data sheet doesn't say, then I would say, I'm just gonna throw the number out, target 5%. If you have more than that, maybe that's okay, but at least use that as a, if you're well below it, then you're probably in good shape. And you, you could probably also look at if you're doing any, uh, this is just me thinking about this, is if you're doing any like analog to DC volt uh, stuff and what's your minimal bit rate you want to um, sample at? Um, so like if you're doing the 8-bit, what's your lowest micro division on your right. uh, conversion? E-knobs. Yeah, so it's like, so what's your, what's, if, if your ripples above that, I, maybe, maybe ADCs have more rejection built into them or not. I don't know, but that could be also something to look at is if your ripples larger than the smallest division of what you want to sample, you're not going to get that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean that, yeah, I think, I think that's, that would actually be a really good one to think about is it, it, on those terms, right. Is what's going to be the most sensitive thing in the circuit. And let's start with that one. Um, and, and again, we, we want to be careful separate out the bulk supplies from maybe the point of loads, right? So that ADD might have a 
point of load that is much better precision than the five volt bulk or like the USB that's feeding it. So take those into account as well. But I think the, the number one takeaway I want to really put there is, uh, you know, if all you have is an oscilloscope with a 10x uh, passive probe, that's better than no scope with no probe. Uh, but there are power rail probes that can get much more accurate uh, values. And I would say if you've got like a really expensive FPGA on the board or a really expensive custom ASIC, then you definitely want one of the special probes to verify that your rail is good. Um, so I don't want this to sound like, oh, the only way to do this is with that special probe. I mean, a 10X probe is still better than a no X probe. You know, another thing, actually, a little story about some Ripple that I was running into last week, actually. Um, Ripple comes in a bunch of different flavors, and, uh, you, you know, it can it can be caused by a bunch of stuff. And so is like the... Like purple? Is, yeah. Is, is the Ripple caused by your switching supply, or is it caused by the load, or is it, you know... And uh, and a great example of that, I was, I was running a... Or I was doing some bring-up tests on a power supply on a, a board I designed the other week, and I noticed... Um, that it had a characteristic ripple on it that uh, I the, the 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 frequency I was able to measure, which I wasn't really able to measure super well. I wish I would have known about these uh, power probes. That that seems like it would have been really nice. Uh, but uh, but no, the, the the ripple I was seeing, like the actual frequency of the, of the ripple, what had I couldn't find anything referencing that in the data sheet of the switching supply or the design of the switcher that I was mm -hmm. going at. And it's just like, where is this like 40 kilohertz wave coming from that they, cause the switcher is like a 500 kilohertz switcher. So I ended up hitting up my uh, firmware guy and I, and I said, wait, what frequency are you sampling at? And he was sampling right at 40 K. And so when the ADC was taking readings, it had a different load and it was causing back ripple on the line effectively. And so like, you know, it was just, something interesting to keep in mind that it's not necessarily the power supply that's causing the ripple. Yeah, actually, if we if we look at what ripple voltage, like a more technical definition, it's the acronym PARD, P-A-R, I'm sorry, P-A-R-D, periodic, oh, I was, I was about to say it wrong. It's periodic amplitude random deviations. I think that's what it stands for. But it basically means what we're talking about are anything that's either periodic or random that causes a deviation in the voltage. It's a really, really fancy word for ripple. Yeah, right. I, <laughs> I was, I found it, and I thought, is this just something somebody made up so that they could get a paper submitted at a conference? Because <laughs> yeah, it sounds very academic. It does sound cool. And 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 I have noticed there's a certain class of engineer that would prefer to use that word versus say ripple. You know, I think it's just ripple, right? But okay. So the nice thing about that is it actually identifies what you were just talking about, right? So there is either it's caused by something periodic or random. And so random is we probably have very little control over that um, because it's technically it should be random. It's um, when the space dust hits your, your electrons on your board. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the periodic, right, there should be something that's causing it. And that's why I think it's really important that after you kind of get the baseline peak to peak, how much voltage is, are you having, you do like an FFT so you can go and find what are the sources of these. And just like you found, Stephen, there's something on the board that's causing that spike. It's just a matter of what is causing that and how does that affect the rest of the system. 
Well, and that's that's exactly the point. Once you identify what it's what's producing it, you can then uh, attack it appropriately, uh, as right. opposed to just like trying, you know, brute force methods. Yeah. So, well, you know, at some point you can't just add another thousand farads or farads, <laughs> a thousand <laughs> microfarads of cap capacitance, and it's like, oh, it fixes the problem. It's like I don't know. You haven't seen my. Uh, <laughs> My uh, FCC testing PCBs, have you? <laughs> <laughs> now you have me worried. <laughs> well, we were calling it uh, last week, Stephen, uh, Thunder Ohm style PCB yeah. assembly. Yeah, it's just like bodging capacitors and, and inductors onto PCBs. <laughs> just soldering through whole stuff to surface mount pads everywhere. Yep. Oh, that fixed it. <laughs> whatever, whatever passes, right? That that actually sort of reminds me. I was talking to an EMC like uh, compliance expert, and I asked, you know, how do you calculate what kind of um, ferrites do you add to a cable or something to see if it passes? And he said, well, you go through the scientific process of you take them out of the sample kit, you put it on the cable, and if it passes, then you write it in the spec or in the, <laughs> on the bomb. And I'm like, yeah. oh. Okay, it's like, well, isn't there some like math or formulas or is there a process? It's like, well, I, yeah, I just told you. Like, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> How do you specify all the ferrites? How does yeah. that work? Out? <laughs> <laughs> uh, process of elimination. The the last time I went and got something uh, certified, I had a suitcase of ferrites and I I'm being dead serious. Like just kits and kits of them where it's just like slap this on, wrap this up, you know. It worked. It's just yeah. bring everything. <laughs> yeah, I, f I feel like a lot of times when you have chamber test time, it's it's all about, look, just find out what works. We'll figure it out later, right? It's like if, if we know what fixes the problem, then we can backtrace what caused the problem. But you don't and have time to do math. At hundreds of dollars an hour. Uh, yeah. Thousands. Um, it, it's also, if you look at other products and you know of that, and you basically you start seeing those ferrite beads <laughs> on power cables and stuff. And you're like, ah, some engineer was running really late on this project. And so they actually had to push the ferrite bead into the final product bomb. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you never, you don't, I, I was going to say never, but you rarely see those on the second or third revision of a production run. Correct. Actually, I'm looking at a power supply right now. that has got one of those on the, uh, <laughs> the uh, 120 volt AC line coming into it. Didn't didn't we just find one of those the other day where it was just a big piece of molded plastic? There wasn't actually a ferrite in it. It just looked like it was a ferrite. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's one way to cut your cost. Yeah. I I I, I hate to speculate on something we that I don't know the actual answer to, but I almost wonder, is that one of those cases where a client was insistent that they needed a ferrite and the engineer said, okay, we'll put a quote ferrite on the cable to make the client happy, even though it was totally unnecessary. It would oh, not surprise I, me. I think it's even like, even I, I would say farther removed. Someone specced it, but in the drawing, it just looks like a bulbous piece of plastic. <laughs> and so when they went to go make it, they just like clipped on a piece of plastic that just matched it. Yeah. Or that makes me think it's one of these like uh, low cost uh, houses that just copy designs and like, oh, there's a hunk of plastic on there. So we must have to have a hunk of plastic, not realizing there was something inside of it. <laughs> 
Yeah, there's yeah, a purpose for that thing. It's like the um, the uh, uh, scams. Well, some people think they're legit. I guess the scams where you you can buy a magnet to put on your fuel line on your car to like positively align the the fuel atoms so that they your car is more efficient. It's like that. It's a hunk of plastic. Well, Parker, if you do the math, you'll find that the quantum <laughs> relativity of each of those ionic disturbances actually does add up to a whole pile of What's the next thing we're going to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> ah, equipment for testing. So we talked about oscilloscopes and power supplies. I guess we didn't go too much into lab power supplies. So I guess a, a, a basic lab power supply has got current limiting, um, probably probably essential oscilloscope. Um, I guess that's where you would plug your company that you work for, James. I can do that's that. I so I I work for Rotor and Schwartz and. So if you don't know who Rotor and Schwartz is, we're primarily an RF company. Um, if you have an LTE cell phone, at some point during its life cycle, either design or even today, it's touched a piece of equipment from us. But I actually work in the oscilloscope division. And so there's a big chunk of engineers that don't know who Rotor and Schwartz is. So we're actually the second largest test measurement company in the world. Uh, but it's they're based in Germany and it's privately held. So especially in the US, we're not as well known and then the second set is a subset of that, which is they don't know that we make oscilloscopes. Um, we've only been on the scope market for about 10 years, which makes us relatively new, but we've got a full range of scopes. So um, we're a very strong contender in that field. So you need an oscilloscope. Has to be that brand, right? <laughs> I highly recommend a Rotor and Schwartz oscilloscope, but it doesn't have to be an RNS scope to do you can you can get away with you know some some basic testing with the other guy's stuff. Actually, that that being said, uh, so a, a power supply is necessary for sure. Yeah, uh, obviously, but but a lot of a lot of projects nowadays can actually be run from something that's not a spectacular power supply. So, would you say the like the second piece of equipment that someone should get if they're starting a lab is a scope? Um, okay. Let's let, let me let me back that take one step back. So I think the first thing anybody should have is a DMM. And I think something a consideration and I think this gets overlooked is most of us probably have a handheld DMM, right? I mean if if you're doing anything with electronics you should have one. If you're in a if you're in a lab or bring up environment, I want you to seriously consider getting a bench DMM for two reasons. The number number one reason is it doesn't tend to move around. Right. And so if you've got your turn on station, you can have your DMM right there. You don't have to go hunt for your handheld. You've got it. And the second is bench DMMs are much faster and they have much more precision and orders of magnitude more accuracy. And so, you know, if you're totally budget strapped and you've already got a handheld and you can't afford anything else, sure, that's it's better than no DMM. But consider if you're really doing a turn on that you should have a stationary DMM that's really, really good. So uh, number one, DMM, number two, power supply. And then I would say number three is scope. Yeah, I, I would say on the DMM, um, I've, at work, I've got a bench one, which is really nice. But for home, I just use like the cheapy $20 jobbies, which right. seem to be fine. And I see that you have in your notes like auto ranging. Auto ranging DMMs are really good if you spend some money on, on the DMM. The... And my, my experience on the cheaper DMMs in the $20, $30 range, the auto ranging is garbage. 
because it's it just hunts all the time and then it's slow. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually you have some idea of what voltage or ohms you're trying to read. Usually, so yeah, that and was- it depends on how much you want to spend on on it. If you're going to go super cheap, don't go the auto ranging, even though you might think that's awesome. At at that at that level of of price, though, most of the time you don't get an option. That was actually that's funny you you brought that up because that was exactly the point I wanted to bring up. Is in general, I recommend getting an auto ranging, but if you're spending in the fifty to one hundred dollar range, yes, yeah, if you're if you're below fifty bucks, then it, for the exact reason you just gave, the auto ranging is going to be a pain. There, the UI on those, is, or the, I shouldn't say UI, the user experience on those is usually so poor. Like being able to manually switch the ranges is a pain. So you're better off getting a manual ranging meter, and you know, in some ways, and I don't want to sound like an old man curmudgeon, but you sort of should start with a with a manual ranging meter so you learn about how to use the ranges correctly. You know, just you know, it, the auto range is nice because you don't have to worry about what voltage you're at, but you, it's sort of like what we talked about at the very beginning. You should be thinking about what your measurement is before you make the measurement, and so the the manual ranging will make you think think about that. Yeah, I I usually suggest there's like a thirty dollar ish meter that's okay for doing this kind of stuff, and then I go buy ten dollar probes. Don't use the cheapy crappy probes yep. that the thirty dollar meter comes with. Get some nice probes that are sharp. Yeah, t- absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up. I didn't even I forgot about that. Yeah, that's that's actually the same advice I give people. Is if if you're especially if you're in that less than $50 budget range, I would rather you spend more money on the probes than the meter because when you do upgrade the meter, you'll just take those probes with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and because newsflash, the $100 meters don't come with that much better of a probe. No, there's um, still the crappy hard plastic, like yeah. just solid plastic ones. And, and just for $10 probes, you get like gold tipped sharp probes that have a soft rubber yep. covering. So they're actually kind of comfortable to use. Um, also to have like a proper cat rating, you know, they should all have the proper cat rating, but if you spend a little bit more money, you can feel a little bit better that they actually wrote the real cat rating on the side of the probes. (laughs) So what is, so I'm going to assume the cat rating is not what kind of cat, like a short hair, long hair cat. What is a cat rating, Craig? Uh, it's, it's the, uh, the voltage rating for, for what they can withstand effectively the breakdown. Okay. Uh, and so isolation typically, yeah, typically the isolation, what is it? I don't remember the exact cat number, but it's typically 600 volt and 1000 volt, uh, is what you can get. Yeah. So I was, I was just looking at mine. So I think cat three is 600 volts and I think that's the minimum you pretty much want to have for any multimeter, even if you're doing 10 volt stuff. I don't know that I've seen DMM leads that are lower voltage rated than that. I'm actually going to check one of my old meters to see if it actually has a different rating. Everyone is scrambling. I got, yeah, I got my, my probes right here. They, they say cat three, uh, 1000 volt max. Um, this is, Oh, okay. So oh, my old set doesn't even have a cat rating on it. Ooh, but it does say made in USA. <laughs> That's got to be safe. Interesting. Doesn't have cat rating, but it's an old Beckman meter. This is interesting. I have two meters, and one says cat three, 300 volts, cat two, 600. And this one, this other one says cat three, 600. 
Mmm. Conspiracy. It's whatever Which, they copy pasted it it's from. It's Catgate. Cat Which Gate. I guess I guess they're just I mean, if Cat Two is actually six No, I thought it was as the I thought never mind. Okay. We're all confusing uh, ourselves here. (laughs) I have have some homework to do. Yeah. That's the opposite of what I thought it was going to be. So the meter itself says max 1,500 volts, but the the leads don't have any cat rating. It might be before cat rating was a thing. I mean, it's a made in USA meter too. So who knows? It looks old school. Who still makes meters in, in the States? Okay, just just the plot thickens. I have a third meter. Ooh. That, uh, cat 3, 1,000. Cat 4, 600. Um, and then the probes. Uh, these are uh, these are probe master probes that I bought a long time ago. They say cat 3, 1,000. Okay, I so, got to look this up now. Because maybe yeah, the cat rating is, means something that I, did, that I didn't. That you had no idea about now. <laughs> yeah, it, it, to me, it's one of these things I've... Uh, at, especially like at home or or in my uh, consulting job, I never deal with anything over 50 volts. So this has never been a, you know, I saw a cat rating and that's all I cared about. But it's like seeing that UL logo. Yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> huh. Okay. I'm. I'm. I, I, I've got a. I've got a fluke PDF for the uh, its safety guidelines up. Uh, I guess I need to do a little bit more research on this too, because it goes from Cat One. Okay, there's two different Cat Ones, two different Cat Twos, two different Cat Threes, and one Cat Four. And for each of those two different Cat um, ratings of one, two, and three, there's a 600 and a 1,000 volt version. Huh. Mm. So, uh, I wonder how much current they can handle. Uh, I don't is know. There, is there? Is the cat rate? I wonder. Is the cat rating based on isolation voltage, and then the voltage that they're giving is the uh, working voltage? Uh, the six hundred or thousand uh, says is the working voltage, and then mm-hmm. they have different uh, peak impulse transients of twenty five hundred and four thousand volts. Okay, for cat one. All right, so I, I think what it is is the cat number one, two, three, four is just how much energy it can handle. Ah. And then there's a voltage rating, which is just the isolation. Okay. That's why both the cat number and the voltage is on the probe. Yes. That makes sense. That, that makes even more. Yeah, see, I've, I've had this misperception for a long time that the cat rating and the voltage number were tied together. But now I think about it, if that was the case, then why would they print both? Right. That's just more work for making the mold, right? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine how much money could have been saved on silk screen if if we only had to print half the information. Yes. <laughs> All right, so um, DMMs, power. Let's go with power supplies now. Um, I, I we've owned a couple um, good power supplies at the, at the fab. Stephen, like what was it? The Rigol. I was. Um, a, yeah, I don't know. That was like a four hundred eight thirty one. Uh, yeah, that sounds correct. Uh, I don't, it's, it's the, the one the, with all like the fancy buttons and the wheel and and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I that's the one I currently have, and I really like it. It's great. I, I like the features it has. I don't like that wheel thing 
because like the numbers are around the wheel too. It's like I just want a three by three number pad, please. <laughs> um, but I, I really like that 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 power supply, and I think that's a really good entry level. Like, I think it's only like three hundred, four hundred bucks. It's really good. It's three channels. I use a at home a forty dollar Amazon Jobby that goes is like fifteen volts at three amps, and yep. if it, if it goes like apparently the failure mode is it just it just goes, it goes straight to line voltage, um, <laughs> but I mean it works great. It has current limiting. <laughs> yeah, dancing with the devil there. <laughs> it has current limiting. <laughs> It has current limiting until it doesn't. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> until it fuses. HY1803D. I think if you, that's like the model number, and like a lot of different people have their flavors of it on yeah. eBay and Amazon and stuff. But I've never had a problem with it. I've I actually, I think I've had this unit for 10 years now. Um, it does seem unsafe when you read about that. Like if the, because it only has one big, I guess transistor or mosfet on the back um if that goes it basically goes straight to line voltage <laughs> on your on your um on your power rail so then you'll really get the smoke test yeah i was gonna say that's that's a <laughs> totally different kind of smoke test and yeah. Uh, yeah so outside of that i think my my opinion is current limiting and the ability to turn the output on and off are really critical and I, I might have a totally false sense of um, a false sense of security blanket, but supplies where you have to to turn them on and off just with the AC power, I always feel like are more likely to have transients than ones that have an output button. I and would I would agree. I that's for this one. It only has an AC on off, so mm -hmm. I actually will just disconnect the lead. That's yeah, how I do it. Yeah. I I do agree. There is having a nice soft power on off so to speak is is really convenient yeah yeah I, I think i think disconnecting the lead is the the best alternative there and which which would lead me to especially if you're looking at something for home or maybe you need to populate multiple lab benches uh, i would favor current limiting over power output because current limiting is just going to save you so many times um that's that's pretty obvious so I think for supplies, that it's really those two things. Make sure you have enough volts and amps, and then current limiting and uh, output control. Well, I think I think Parker kind of proved it with the supply he was talking about up there. Uh, your the cost the the dollar per volts and amps is not very much. Uh, so spend your money on on better features. Yes, because yeah, that's like what sixty watts almost. Yeah. Which yeah, and, and for, for a lot for of the stuff that everything. you do, it's way more than, you know, unless you're doing your anodizing and you need, like, what what did you do the other day? It was, like, a couple hundred watts into the tub. Yeah, or it's, what? like, 150 <laughs> watts into a bucket. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that that's a little different of a problem, though. <laughs> so I, I got that, lucky. That I, have a, a short. Uh, I have a Keithley 2230G uh, programmable uh, power supply, and that thing is just fantastic uh, i mean everything is is you know just a menu on the front and uh uh it you know it has all the features um it's just that thing saved my bacon a handful of times it but it's not you know i'm looking at it right now i think it's 1700 dollars. it's not like in uh not really reachable but for most hobby um budgets 
Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think. I think the message here is it's it's especially power supplies is something that's really strange to me because you have the one hundred dollar power supply which covers most basic needs, although it could be dangerous if it fails, and then still in that same kind of power range, there's stuff that are thousands of dollars. And so, you know, it's, it's, you really have to pick your budget and then get what's best for what you're doing from a, from a day-to-day job perspective, I would say, consider that high-end power supply for when you're doing your initial board turn-ons, because that's where you want the most flexibility, the most safety, the most backup. And you probably don't need a lab full of them, right? If you've got one really good power supply to help make sure the board checks out, then you can go and use your cheap supplies and know that you're using a cheap supply. Actually, I also like the idea of um, testing your board on something that's good and something that's bad just to see what the results are. (laughs) Yeah, actually going back to our validating the power supply test. um, In fact, I was just working on something, um, an op amp circuit, and I noticed a strange frequency and I found that it was the bench supply that I was using. It was a cheaper supply, but you know, it was like, okay, I was like, wow, I would have expected the, that I would have expected that frequency to get rejected and it didn't. So it actually told me something about the circuit. Unfortunately, it, your, your circuit extends beyond what your circuit actually is, right? You have to consider everything. <sighs> yeah, it was, it was great to know that, but it was also like, oh, come on, really? I thought, <laughs> I thought I that out. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on an oscillator at work right now, and uh, uh, I was using, honestly, some pretty garbage power, and I was getting tons of jitter, and I'm like, is this my design? I, I'm not entirely sure, and then I hooked up a nice power supply, and it's just rock solid, and it's like, oh, God, I've, that's a whole day wasted trying to find jitter. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of trying to find jitter, um, so oscilloscope, so if, if you're building out your, your first lab, what should you look into at getting the oscilloscope? Yeah, this is a, it's we, a big we topic. Probably, we, we could probably spend a whole episode on just how do you pick the right scope. But there's a, there's a, let, let me boil it down to a couple of things that I think applies to any budget range so that, uh, so that it applies to almost everybody listening. Number one, uh, and, I, and I run into this all the time, please do not confuse sample rate and bandwidth. The sample rate is for the analog to digital converter, and that is the fastest rate at which it can uh, digitize the waveform. However, the bandwidth is a low-pass filter that sits in front of the ADC. Now, it's a super wide low-pass filter, but you can have a one gigasample um, oscilloscope with a 50 megahertz uh, bandwidth, which means you can put 200 megahertz into it all day long, and you will not see anything on the screen. So just remember that the analog uh, bandwidth is the low-pass filter for the ADC. So if your scope does have a, like a, the, so if you take the scope sample rate, keep calling it giga samples, not gigahertz, because it's not gigahertz. Um, and then the other comment I have is, Look for scopes that have some uh, built-in additional capabilities. I mean, even the low-end Regals now come with uh, serial decodes as well as arbitrary waveform generators that are built in. And so if you're in the market for a new scope, consider these other um, tools to be part of the scope package. Uh, Because like, I mean, how many designs are there that don't have I2C or SPI or UART or even now USB somewhere on the board? 
And so if you can look at what's going on when that spike in the power supply occurs, you might be able to correlate what's, what's happening. So those are the two things I would, three things I would say about the scope. Make sure you get enough bandwidth. And today, if you're buying a scope, most scopes have enough sample rate behind their bandwidth that you really only need to think about how much bandwidth does it have. Um, decode and, uh, and arbitrary waveform. I thought I had a third one and now. I, FFT. Uh, yeah, FFT. Oh, oh, and the fourth one, probes. Um, I Probes are a really, really tough one because uh, if you have to buy, so most scopes will come with passive probes, which are fine up to 500 megahertz. Uh, even if the vendor claims it's a one gigahertz passive probe, it's probably more like 700 megahertz. Uh, but you're still in that 500 megahertz to one gigahertz range. To get more bandwidth than that, you have to go to uh, active probes. And so from a budgeting perspective, just get prepared. If you have to get into either a single-ended or a differential or a current or even that power rail probe I mentioned, it doesn't take long before the probes cost more than the scope. So don't underestimate how much a probe costs if your application, whatever you're doing on your board, needs one. But for vast majority of work, the 10x passive probes that come with the scope is probably going to be okay. Right. I think. I think if you're if you're needing those kind of active probes, uh, you you might already be aware of the cost of them. Maybe. <laughs> uh, the the reason I bring it up is because I'm surprised at how many people buy one or two gig scopes and don't realize that the probes that come with it are only 500 megahertz. And so, I think. There's a little bit of a misconception. I'll tell a real quick story. Years and years ago, when I was an application engineer for a different scope company, we were talking to a customer. They had just bought like 10 one gig scopes. And the customer says to our national sales manager, I can't believe I bought a one gig scope and you ship 500 megahertz probes. And the sales manager, not realizing what he was saying, said, oh, no problem. We'll just, we'll just ship you a whole set of probes for it. <laughs> and I was like, you realize you just offered him four probes that cost more than the scope did based on the discount that we gave them. And he was like, well, why didn't anyone tell me that? Like, <laughs> what was I supposed to say? <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. So that's what I'll say for the scope. So what about the uh, other stuff like... Um, uh, uh, frequency generators or, or uh, uh, you know, a, a, what other equipment would we uh, potentially be looking at? So my question for you guys is, when's the last time that you used a standalone function generator and what did you use it for? Doorstop. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, okay, so I, I'm, I'm an odd bird. I... I truly and honestly just because i work in the uh, synthesizer industry and we do a ton of uh signal injection and we do control voltage and things like that so i did use one like last week but mm -hmm. the the time before that was probably many 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 months i, I i'll put what i have i lent out my cheap power supply and i did use my function generator as a power supply before I was just waiting for that. <laughs> <laughs> I've done that before. <laughs> yeah, I've used it for like a few milliamps of a, of a stable supply. <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah, I, the one reason I wanted to bring it up because I get that quite often is, you know, what, what should I get in a function generator? I think you got to look and say, are you doing anything where you need to generate waveforms? 
And this is where I sort of step back and say, hey, if your scope has a waveform generator, I would start there. And if that's not good enough, then then yeah, go and look and see what you need. Because just like all the, all the other equipment, you can get something for a couple hundred dollars or something that's thousands of dollars. But uh, for a home hobby user, I would definitely say don't buy a function generator until you need one, unless you come across an amazing deal. Yeah, and depending on what you need, like a lot of times you can make your Arduino be a function generator. Uh, good enough for whatever your project is? Yeah, good enough for whatever you needed to do. Yep, yeah. So unless you have a specific need, I, I say don't worry too much about it. And again, it comes down to what you're doing, right? If you're doing synthesizer or audio stuff, then yeah, it probably does make sense to have one. But I mean, I actually, the, about the only time I use mine is to see if my scope works. <laughs> mine, mine is so like, it's my function generator is a piece of junk. Like I basically have to pipe it into the oscilloscope to see what wave I'm making. And I'm like, okay, that's what I need to use for my circuit. <laughs> the the, uh, the amplitude knob means nothing. Yeah, it doesn't at all. You know, I, I used mine once. I actually, well, I used two of them. Uh, one to control the other one because one of my function generators has a uh, voltage control input for controlling the frequency. So I used one. Uh, as a sawtooth wave to do a sweep with the other one and I plugged that into one of my amplifiers and I just had my amplifier into an 8 ohm 200 watt resistor and I just cranked it. I just juiced the amp and let it run for about 6 hours sweeping from 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz of just like can my amp put out 100 watts continuously for 8 hours across the whole frequency range and so it's useful for things like that but I did that, you know, once for fun. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I hate to rat, rat hole on this one, but so it's it sounds like it almost has like a VCO type functionality, right? So mm -hmm. you put in a voltage and then that changes the output frequency? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's, huh. what, that's why one of my... I have two uh, frequency generators or function generators, and that's why one of them was used to control the other one uh, to create a sweep. Is that one an arbitrary waveform or is that a... Or is that like a hardware, hardware, uh, or an or an analog? Yeah, it, it, they're both old analog ones. I okay. I taught okay. a lecture at an electronic store one time, and when I left, the owner of the store just handed me two <sighs> generators. <laughs> I was like, okay, cool, I'll take them. Yeah, and maybe that's a follow up to my comment earlier about you know you don't really need to worry about one. If you get a free one, I would definitely say that you need it. Right? <laughs> That's fantastic. Almost my entire workbench worth of test equipment was free from teaching lessons at that um, shop. So I have a lot of gear I don't need. Your old uh, where your old uh, warehouse slash, uh, I guess not, it's not an office, but um, workshop was uh, I had a pallet of oscilloscopes in it. Yeah, yeah, I got eighty-eight <laughs> oscilloscopes one time from that guy uh, oh, wow. and five of them worked <laughs> <laughs> okay what 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 other devices do should people look into if they're powering up boards or getting into hardware design yeah so the other one i wanted to mention is sort of along the lines of the scope where you integrate multiple things there's stuff like the analog discovery or now the analog discovery 2 from digilent 
uh, which are these all-in-one devices, and they're basically they're basically usually some kind of FPGA with some analog front ends that allow you to do things like uh, waveform generation, power supply, act as a scope, act as a spectrum analyzer. Um, one thing I noticed, and this was from talking to a number of people, you know, now that they're starting to do more work from home, something like that they were finding was useful because, yeah, it's not nearly as good as individual pieces of equipment that do all those things, but it's good enough that it can operate a board and at least get them get them up and running and doing some basic testing. And so I think something like the analog discovery, it's like a 10 to 15 megahertz analog scope. It's got a both positive and negative power supply. Now it's only a couple hundred milliamps, but that might be enough for most circuits. Um, it has an arbitrary waveform generation mode. So, you know, you can basically loop it back on itself and see, see what the waveforms look like. And uh, then it does stuff like network an network uh, analyzer. So you can like, test passive components and act act as a spectrum analyzer. So I'm not trying to I'm not obviously not trying to sell them, but I just wanted to 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 mention it because um, if you're especially in a situation where maybe you don't want to invest into a whole bunch of equipment for whatever reason, that might be an alternative for a couple hundred dollars. You get something that sort of limps you along until you can afford to replace it with other devices. Yeah, at about two hundred and eighty dollars, that's pretty good for all of that in one. Yeah, yeah. And and I, it's been a while since I looked at it, but for a while they had like this, the, the base model and then a pro bundle. Um, my recommendation is that pro bundle because it comes with an adapter that converts from the header pins to BNCs so that you can actually use BNCs or probes with the scope and the, the waveform generator. And at some point, that bundle was actually just a few dollars more than the base unit. So if you're going to go that route, check out that. And then I think if you go to Digilance website, they offer, uh, I think either they do or maybe through schools, they offer discounts to education. I'm just not as uh, familiar with those. I think you have a soldering station down here. Um, that This is going to be a really touchy topic, I think, <laughs> between all three of us on, on soldering stations. Um, so... I, James, you you haven't had we Steve and I have argued about soldering irons lots. Okay. Um, so James, you get to jump in here. Um, <laughs> what's your opinion on on getting a soldering station? What do you look for? So, like everything else, um, now I'm walking on, walking on eggshells. Like everything else, <laughs> you have to look at what you're doing. So the context I picked for this conversation is. Uh, what would you use a soldering iron for if you get a board back from a fab? So, you know, I didn't want to go down the route of I get a blank board. Uh, uh, let me rephrase what I said because I already messed it up. If I get an assembly back from the fab, uh, not the situation where I get a blank board and have to solder components onto it. Um, what would you want to think about? So to me, if if most applications you're going to have surface mount parts, which means you're going to need something to be able to deal with surface mount. And the lowest common denominator there is going to be hot air. Uh, easier to desolder them, helps with soldering them on. And then you probably also want to have a traditional pencil style because you probably will need to solder on headers or move some through hole parts around. Um, I don't know, you know, I think it's going to depend on everybody's level of skill and need what else you would want to consider. But I think in terms of a 
turning on a board, those are the two things, right? You're gonna have to change some parts around and you might have to add like debug headers that you didn't even have in the, in the, uh, um, the data packet that you sent to the fab. No, I would say that's all fair. <laughs> Is that a politically correct statement? Yeah, that'd be all good. Honestly, I think I think most of what Parker was was talking about in terms of us arguing is just more about soldering tips. <laughs> yeah, soldering tips. Really. <laughs> um, I would say you get a soldering iron that's got multiple tips, so yes. you can figure out what style you like. Because Stephen's a uh, he, he Stephen likes the little tiny sniper style irons, <laughs> and I'm like I want the biggest chisel. He likes a baseball it has the most bat. heat. So, yeah, I use it as a I, club. I, I, I think, yeah, I think, I think the right answer there is make sure that you can get, make sure it has, it supports multiple tips and that there's multiple tips available, mm -hmm. which might sound silly to say, but it, you know, I remember years ago I bought like a, a cheap iron. It was like 20 or $30 and I bought it because it was cheap and it had removable tips. And then this was back when fries was still a thing. I don't know if it's not a thing anymore, but I have a feeling it's not going to be. I so think it's in purgatory went, right now. Yeah. So I went back to Fry's. I, I, I got a better way to say it. So this was back when Fry's had stuff on their shelves. Um, <laughs> so I went back to Fry's to buy new tips. And that's when I realized there were none. Like, yeah, it was replaceable. But the only thing you could replace it with was the same tip that it came with. Hmm. And, then, and it's like, oh, well, that was useless. So make sure oh. it's replaceable, but also that there are other tips for it available. No, um, I, I actually, yes. Uh, the, um, my first Radio Shack iron was like that. You could re undo a screw and the tip would come out, but they didn't sell replacement tips for that. Yeah, exactly. You know what's, yeah. what's uh, kind of awesome, though? Uh, a lot of these, you know, you know, $100 wonders on Amazon that is like a soldering iron and hot air station, like the full rework station thing. Uh, they're actually designed to accept uh, HACO tips, which those are always going to be available. Is it HACO or HACO? Uh, I've always said HACO, but... That's interesting. I say HACO. <laughs> so we have three different opinions here. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Um, that's actually what I use a lot. And actually, I had my... My my one unit I bought eight years ago. It's it's an Xtronic brand, which doesn't really matter, but it uses Hako style tips. The iron just failed like three days ago. Like it won't turn on anymore. Aww. It might have been because I left it on for like a week without realizing it. <laughs> huh, <I> but <laughs> um, yeah, the element doesn't work in it anymore. The hot air side still works, but. The great thing about those units is they they sell uh, when you buy them they generally come with like replacement elements too. I had to go find where I put eight years ago that element though. You've moved like three <laughs> times since. Then. I moved three times since then too. You know, uh, so so I, on, on a side note, I I use almost every day uh, hot tweezers. And those yeah. are super nice because uh, we do so we do a ton of analog uh, work and we're adjusting gains on op amps. So like when we do design work, we do our simulations and we do our calculations, but like that's never going to get you exactly there. Uh, at least I've uh, found that. So we'll we'll get our designs, see how close we are, and then it's a matter of popping off, you know, small stuff and, and getting adjusting gains and the hot tweezers are just amazing for that because they're just super fast. So if you know you're going to be doing work like that, I suggest, you know, investing in some of those if you can.
I totally agree. Just just two days ago, I was doing a uh, I was modifying a game gear, and the first thing you have to do is remove about fifteen uh, surface mount components. Mm. And my tweezers made that go in like five minutes. Oh yeah. I mean, it was it was so easy. It was it was. Uh, now I will I, I do want to just throw this out there. Um, uh, at least for ceramic capacitors, do not use those tips to solder the capacitor onto the board, and do not plan to use the capacitor after you've removed it because those tips will thermally crack the capacitor. For sure, so yeah. Actually, we talked about that, that the last time you were on the, uh, yep. the pod. Yep. I, I've always considered hot tweezers to be uh, extraction only. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want to make sure everybody knows that because it's really tempting to like use. Uh, uh, normal tweezers to to hold the part on there while the hot tweezers heat it. No, that's not what they're meant for. They're they're meant to easily take parts off without destroying the pads. Yeah, a, a pencil tip iron is for one pad. Hot tweezers are for two, and hot air is for any number above two. <laughs> and and by the way, just a, just a, yeah, just another tip on that note. Please practice the hot air on a board you don't care about before you try it on a board you do care about. Because when everything goes liquid at the same time and then blows away, <laughs> you're, you're going to want to learn how you're going to want to learn how to like figure out right before that moment occurs and just how far you need to hold it and and what's the area of uh, effect. Don't don't use hot don't use a new hot air tool for the first time on a board you care about. You know, find find a piece of scrap and practice desoldering parts and soldering parts onto it before you use it for real. Because uh, otherwise, you're going to have a bad time. And I would recommend getting a, a like a backer for this. Scrap PCBs work really well as backers. Um, so you don't I've melt definitely, your desk. Yes, I have definitely bubbled my vinyl covered desk with hot <laughs> air before. Because you'd be de- you'd be desoldering something and you hear a pop and you're like, oh, did I just blow up the part? No, you actually just blew apart the the desk underneath it. <laughs> <laughs> Like there was like an air pocket or something from when they laminated it. Or yeah, the yes. glue finally gave. The glue just expanded and exploded underneath it. Yeah, I had I had one of those. So I when I got my new hot air, I had one of those green cutting mats and I had the board sitting right on it. And I didn't know it until I picked it up and realized it was stuck. Oh. And as I picked it up, there's just this green goo. And I was like, oh, oh, well. So So now I know I should have put a PCB underneath it. Yeah, just something with some thermal mass or I guess you can get one of those like holders that holds them up too. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I also use sometimes, well, I, I used to use a silicone, like a uh, silicone mat, um, but I'm stopping to do that because I noticed it builds up an uh, uh, electrostatic charge and I'm not sure of a good way to dissipate it yet. So that's why I like the circuit board idea. I feel like that's a probably a safer route. And any good engineer should have a bunch of bum PCBs lying around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no comments. I, I won't. I won't say who, but I was talking to somebody, and I said, "Yeah, I, I have a bunch of boards. I could. I could show why this test won't work." And they asked me, "Why do you have so many boards that don't work?" It's like that. That's not your business. <laughs> <laughs> it's like there's skeletons in the closet. Um, so we. I have one more question before we uh, sign off is um so we talked about what do you do when you first power on your board all that stuff and we talked about test equipment so what happens if you power it up and it does all go up in smoke what sh- 
what your number one thing to do first, James? We're gonna actually go in my, order, I guess. Uh, I tell you, I tell you what, my number one. If if I turn on a board and something blows up, my number one thing I do is I say, I am so glad I wore safety glasses when I did this. <laughs> so step zero is put on safety glasses before you turn on a board for the first time, even if it passes continuity, even if you have the current limiting turned on. If a electrolytic blows, it's a bottle cap, a uh, bottle rocket, right? So it's a good way to wake I, I you up. I don't know why, but I've, I've realized there's almost a, a, a lot of electronics people have this like adversity to wearing safety glasses. Um, I think it's just people in general. And maybe that's what it is. I just, and hey, you know what? If, if, you, if you feel that way, that's okay. Put them on, turn the board on, nothing blows up, take them back off, fine. You know? But I really recommend it because especially if things aren't working, you're gonna have your face in the board. And if one of the caps decides to blow while you're looking at it, you're not gonna have time to move. Um, so, okay. Real answer is, um, I mean, if, if, if something blows, obviously the number one thing I do is I shut the power off right away. And then you wanna go and investigate what blew up. What I don't recommend doing is replacing the part and doing it again immediately. <laughs> because that's probably a good way to just end up with another busted part <laughs> i don't know why it didn't work again <laughs> <laughs> i guess i have to do it a third time uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> sure your boss sure would like the to distributor hear that. has more of these parts <laughs> um yeah then i think then i think you're you're so yeah so in seriousness don't just replace the part and turn power back on try to determine the root cause of why it failed um, you know, if you did the visual inspection, uh, maybe now look for uh, uh, traces of were there pads that were soldered together or was there something that you couldn't see before? Um, double check your continuity at that point. Find out, was there something leading up to that component that you missed? Um, and then another thing I would check is the capacitors and diodes that are in the critical path of that circuit. That's a good time to make sure they're all set in the right direction, you know. You might miss all those things on the initial pass-through, but when something blows, I mean, the chances that you just happen to have a bad part that just happened to fail right then is so low that it's got to be caused by something else. Mm -hmm. What would you guys do? Hang my head in shame. <laughs> blame, blame somebody else. <laughs> yeah, blame that. <laughs> Who designed this? Yeah, I called the fab house and start complaining. Hey, that's, that's uh, no, most no. people's first. Thing. I, I was, I was going to say, yeah, I'd pick up the phone and be like, hey, Parker, you guys messed up my board. <laughs> <laughs> why, why did you make it exactly like I told you? Exactly. <laughs> no, um, usually, it depends on the component uh, that exploded. Uh, usually, if it's an active component, I will immediately first, well, I'll make sure was the part put on correctly orientation wise. And then, then I go look at the power pins on my schematic. Um, because more often than not, when that happens, um, I designed the part wrong. Um, op amps, I've definitely flipped the positive negative rails on op amps yep. all the time. Um, and uh, that, that definitely makes unhappy op amps. Uh, makes a little tiny, you know, SOIC8 size heaters. So, <laughs> you know, um, uh, a quick, uh, quick little note I think that's important is. Um, 
you know, if that does happen and, you know, and if it, it is your design, like, uh, it's a really good way to ruin your day to, to, you know, you walk in the office, turn on your brand new board and then it doesn't work or it explodes or whatever. And that's sort of the moment where, you know, you can get really flustered and frustrated. Uh, it's, I think it's super important to kind of calm down and like take your next steps really carefully and be really careful with things. I've certainly been in the situation where I have messed something up and then I tried to fix it and then I messed it up more. And I eventually went down the road where it's like, we just need to reorder the board. And, and a lot of it was due to me not being careful or me being frustrated with something being broken so like that's a really good situation to sit back take a breath go look at your design and say like what could have happened before just getting out your hot air gun and just like let's remove a bunch of crap Mm -hmm. i almost always go straight back to my design because it's it's 99 percent of the time it's the design the problem was between what the chair and the keyboard yeah yeah that's that that's the same for me more times than i would like to admit (laughs) (laughs) We're engineers. We're always right. Yeah. That's why we have all those bum boards around. It's just to to which degree in which right is defined in this context. Oh, right is a sliding scale that changes when the design does. I got back a board and it did turn on briefly. (laughs) Instantaneous turn on. There, There was probably a moment in there. And if I had a really good scope, I would have seen the moment that it was working fine. Yeah. Followed by the lots of moments it won't anymore. <laughs> well, cool. All right. Do we have anything else to add, James, Stephen? I no. I think uh, no. I think I'm good. Well, thank you again, James, for coming on the podcast. It's always fun to have you on. Thank you, guys. This was a, a fun conversation for me. I think uh, I, I even picked up a few things while we talked. So thanks for having me. And you want to sign us out, James? All right. That was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I was your guest, James Lewis. And we're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy.